Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week in the Canadian Revolution, we are back after having a couple, taking a couple weeks off. Um, we are here this week to discuss uh, the crisis in Britain. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, has resigned. He is kind of the British Trump, if you're following British politics. This is big news. He resigned last, I believe it was last Thursday, July 7th, um, after a crisis, big crisis, scandal after scandal. Um, so yeah, this is shocking to many people. This is just the latest development in a long series of ups and downs of shocking events that we've been witnessing in Britain. So uh, in order to get to the bottom of this and help provide a Marxist analysis of these events, uh, I have with me today uh, Adam Booth, uh, editor of Socialist.net, which is Socialist Appeal, the website of Socialist Appeal, which is our sister organization. Uh, we're all part of the international Marxist tendency, so it's our sister organization in Britain. So, uh, yeah, Adam is going to help me explain why this has happened and what we can learn from it. So, uh, welcome, Adam. Hi there, Joel. Thanks for having us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for joining me today. So, I guess we just start with the Boris resigning. Why did this happen? Can you just explain a little bit, like, what what happened for our listeners here? Yeah, well, I think you said it was a shock, but in many respects, the shocking thing is it didn't happen sooner uh, because actually there's just been this torrent of scandal and sleaze enveloping the Tory party and Downing Street for, for months now, really. Um, it all kind of got going during the pandemic. Um, there was lots of corruption around how the Tory party had dealt with the pandemic, giving out contracts to their rich friends, uh, and every day it seemed like uh, after the initial kind of uh, national unity around the pandemic, you know, initially people coming together uh, with this kind of wartime mentality, but very quickly that dissipated. You had uh, Boris Johnson's main political advisor, a man called Dominic Cummings, who was kind of this shadowy Rasputin type figure in Downing Street. And he was found uh, to be breaking lockdown rules right at the beginning of the pandemic. And ever since then, really, there's just been one scandal after another. And uh, I think things really started to accelerate around uh, last autumn. You had um, another Tory MP who was caught uh, involved in political lobbying, basically one of the firms that had been given these contracts for the COVID uh, pandemic from the, from the government. He was found to have been associated with them. And there was all sorts of other links between Tory MPs and big business and all this sorts of dodgy dealings going on. And basically, he, he, he was uh, on his way out, this MP. He should have been uh, fired there and then on the spot. But Boris Johnson stepped in to try and save him. 
tried to change the rules. And this really unleashed a load of fury amongst Tory MPs themselves saying, why are we having to cover for this guy? And then it just really seemed to go on and on after that. And it became very clear, I think, that the establishment themselves were kind of playing a role in trying to build up these uh, scandals because, you know, scandals in the Tory party is no new thing. It's, I mean, after all, is the party of British capitalism. But here it seemed like the press really turned on, on, on Boris Johnson at this time because they could see he was a maverick. They could see that he was a complete egotist, very self-centered, and was only really interested in his own career, his own interests, and didn't have the interests of British capitalism at heart. I mean, this was a man who, when he was told that Brexit would be bad for business, his words were F-U-C-K, business, uh, in, in no, short, <laughs> no short term. So he, he really has no care about the interests of British capitalism. He's, he, was, he was willing to do whatever it took just to keep himself in power. And then it accelerated even further. Just before Christmas, you had uh, revelations coming out that apparently there'd been parties going on in number 10 Downing Street, the residency, the official residency of the prime minister. Supposedly, Boris Johnson didn't know about it, but it was so obvious that he did. There were pictures were emerging of him in, in, you know, in these parties. Uh, he was given a birthday cake and uh, one of these with a glass of champagne. And he said, oh, I was ambushed by a, a birthday cake. I, I didn't know it was happening. But it was all very clear. There was hundreds of people being invited to these Tory party staffers and so on. And this provoked real fury amongst ordinary people because, you know, they, they, they were having to uh, say goodbye to their loved ones who were dying in hospital over the phone. And meanwhile, you had Tory MPs, Tory staffers, and Boris Johnson, it seemed himself, actually partaking in these uh, kind of bacchanalian, uh, you know, drinking fests. You know, people were wheeling in suitcases of booze into Downing Street. And everyone really thought that that was going to be the moment that Boris Johnson would resign. And any other normal prime minister probably would have done. But Boris Johnson isn't normal. He's, he's as you say, he's a bit of a Donald Trump type character, clinging on, clinging on. And uh, even the police were brought in to investigate it uh, because, you know, the, you know they, they should have known what was going on. They have people outside of Downing Street all the time. Civil servants were brought in to investigate it. They released a special report. Lots of evidence just mounting and damning. And all the meanwhile, just Boris Johnson was shrugging the whole thing off, just saying he wasn't going to go. He wasn't going to go. Eventually, there was a vote of no confidence by his own MPs held in him. They, they, enough MPs wrote in to say they wanted Boris gone. And Boris Johnson basically managed to narrowly escape. I think something like 41% of Tory MPs said they wanted Boris gone. So he narrowly escaped. But then just a few weeks after that, less than a couple of weeks later, there were two by-elections. So two MPs who were both found uh, guilty of, of sexual misconduct, again, a sign of the rot within the party. One was, uh, had to resign over paedophilia. The other was found watching porn in, in, uh, in Parliament. I mean, this is the degeneracy of the Tory party, right? You've got paedophiles, porn watchers, people in Parliament, supposed to be representing ordinary people, but clearly just these uh, all sorts of degenerate, rotten types representing the rot of the party itself. And then you've got the king of corruption, Boris Johnson, at the head of all of this. But these MPs had to resign. Two elections were held, and, and, and the Tories lost both of them by big margins, actually. They were... They were safe seats or should have been safe seats to the Tory party, but they lost them. And suddenly that set off an avalanche where suddenly all these other Tory party MPs were thinking, well, we could go any minute. You know, the next election, 
people, our colleagues are losing, you know, in seats that we thought were safe. And so it, it wasn't a question of, you know, one or two might lose their seats, but they were thinking dozens or even hundreds of Tories might be out come the next general election. And so at that point, they then turned. And even though they had only just voted to keep Boris Johnson narrowly, they now suddenly started resigning one after the other. And the, the nominal clause was a yet, a yet again some more corruption, more lying by Boris Johnson, where one of his parliamentary whips, these people who are supposed to kind of keep the, the MPs in line and keep them uh, you know, voting the right way, one of these was found to have had a history of sexual misconduct himself. Boris Johnson had lied, saying he didn't know about it when clearly he did. And this was the nominal excuse, really, for then two very high-profile ministers, Rishi Sunak, the, who had been the chancellor, and Sajid Javid, who had been the health secretary. They were very prominent Tory MPs. They both resigned from the cabinet. And after that, lots of other ministers started resigning. And in, in the space of 48 hours, dozens of these ministers had resigned. And, and it was just piling on more and more pressure until you had the point where Boris Johnson was saying, I'm not going to go. The country wants me all of this kind of uh, nonsense, uh, all this bluff and bluster. But eventually he was left without a government. Uh, there, there wasn't enough ministers to even run the government departments. And so at that point, basically, as you say, last Thursday, he eventually caved in, admitted defeat, fell on his sword and, and reluctantly resigned. Even then, he blamed it on the MPs. He said, oh, it's like a herd mob mentality that's taken over. It was, uh, it was incredible stuff to watch, really. It was a real implosion, a real meltdown of the Tory party. And now they haven't got a leader and they're trying to elect a new one. And the knives are out uh, as, they, as they fall over each other to see who can uh, try and stab each other in the back and who can outflank each other the, the hardest when it comes to right-wing policies, you know, demagogy, uh, tax cuts, libertarianism, racism, anti-migrant stuff. It's, I mean, it's really let the cat out of the bag, but that's... That's how it's all unfolded over the last few months. It's, uh, it's, it's been a real torrent of sleaze and scandal. And finally, uh, if you like, the dam has burst and everything, all of this, uh, all this crap is now flowing freely in, out into the open. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Adam. I think you've done a good job of, uh, well, this is only the tip of the iceberg, but outlining uh, some of the, the, the rot at the heart of the Conservative Party, the Tory party there. That has led to Boris Johnson resigning, uh, and uh, but I think you know this isn't this isn't coming out of nowhere. It's not. It's, it's. I think a lot of like liberal commentators just blame Boris Johnson, right? But this is not. So I think like we're Marxists. We need to take a we need to take a broader analysis of the context of this happening, and, and that will help us to explain why, right? It's uh, so. Uh, I, I guess the context that I'm referring to is the crisis of British capitalism. We were chatting a bit about before we started the, the podcast, which is really, uh, I believe, more developed than the crisis in Canadian capitalism. We are also in a crisis, but this, the crisis of British capitalism has been going on not, not just, I mean, recently it's really bad, but even the decline of British capitalism over decades. Um, so... Um, anyway, I'm sure you know much more about that than I do, so I think that would help the listeners as well to understand the context in which these massive political convulsions are taking place to understand the, the crisis of, of the system, uh, ultimately. And again, we are talking about that, you know, 
This used to be the, you know, the British Empire, the the workshop of the world, the birth of capitalism, basically. And now you have this really, really deep, profound crisis of the capitalist system. So I think we really have to understand that to understand these political convulsions. But I don't know if you have a few words to say about that. I think that would help us to basically put this uh, Boris Johnson resigning in, in proper context. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Joel. It's it has to be seen in this context. You know, we we as Marxists, you know, we understand the role of the individual in history. The individuals obviously make history, but they are also the product of it. And in this case, yeah, you have a, a special crisis of British capitalism, if you like, where obviously there's the global crisis, and uh, we've had big turning points in terms of 2008, 2020, and now obviously with the Ukraine war, all of these turning points. In, in exacerbating the global crisis of capitalism. Britain at every juncture has been hit harder, if you like, than it seems than, than other advanced capitalist countries. I mean, the latest predictions from the OECD say that Britain will be the slowest growth uh, of every G20 country bar Russia, which has a, is a very special case because of the, the sanctions put on it. And uh, at the same time, I think the inflation is running higher in Britain than in, in all the other G7 countries. It's, it's predicted to reach 11% by the end of the year. But this goes way back, as you say, it's, it's over a century long process in reality. You know, Britain had gone into the First World War as the main imperialist power. It came out of it a declined power. And ever since it's been a, a continually declining power. And uh, you, know, you had that reflected in, in the loss of the British empire, the loss of its colonies, and the loss of British industry as well. The, the British capitalists, instead of uh, investing in raising productivity, in, uh, in, in trying to develop industry in Britain, it became more and more short-termist. The city of London became more and more important as the center of speculation, of gambling. And that really accelerated after the Second World War and then into the 70s and 80s, particularly then in the Thatcher period, you know, Thatcher, was that was a real turning point for, for, for British capitalism and the, and the Tory party as well. It was the first time actually that you'd had someone who wasn't from the kind of aristocracy of the, the British ruling class leading the Tory party. You had in the past, Leon Trotsky said that the British capitalists had uh, leaders who, who thought in terms of centuries and continents. In other words, they were very far-sighted individuals who who didn't, you know, they weren't coming directly from the capitalist class themselves because these were the, the money grabbing types, you know, the real, these were the real gamblers and, and spivs and speculators. But you had these aristoc aristocratic kind of ladies and gentlemen who, who, who saw the bigger picture, if you like, you know, they thought about the interests of British capitalism as a whole, not their own individual interests. But more and more that gave way to these, uh, these petty bourgeois types, these, uh, these, these short-termist people who couldn't see further than their own nose. And, and Margaret Thatcher was really the epitome of that, you know, really uh, selling off all of British industry, focusing everything on the city of London and uh, on the question of credit, attacking the unions, shutting down all the mines, all of the other big industries, the print works, the, the, the coal, steel, all of this was moved abroad. And, uh, and Britain then just became, you know, this, this as I said, this, this casino effectively, an island casino. And, uh, and that's what made it particularly vulnerable then when it came to the 2008 crisis, because suddenly, you know, Britain wasn't making anything and all the, all the, as, the, as the crisis hit, you know, all the investment dried up, uh, the, 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 the crisis in 2008 particularly hit Britain very hard in terms of 
you know, the banks having to be bailed out. They were really uh, submerged in all of this subprime mortgage scandal and, and all of these, uh, uh, you know, all this jiggery pokery going on in, on the financial markets. And so British capitalism then came out of 2008 with an acute crisis. And, uh, and that meant years of austerity, very brutal austerity coming in in 2010 with uh, the, the coalition Tory liberal government we had. And that austerity then in turn led to massive radicalization. Uh, you had big movements of, of, on the streets. You had uh, the beginnings again of, of industrial struggle with the unions. And eventually that found an expression both in terms of social instability and political instability. And ever since then, really, it's just been one big political earthquake after another from uh, really 2014 onwards. You had the, the Scottish independence referendum, uh, the Corbyn movement in 2015, the rise of that, then Brexit in 2016, which was this kind of kick against the establishment, against Westminster by these kind of left behind areas that were deprived, that had seen nothing but cuts. And really that's then the, uh, the background to, to the further degeneration of the Tory party, to the further political polarization and the further instability that we've seen economically, politically and socially in Britain over the last seven or eight years. Yeah, so I think this is quite fantastic to witness the the decline of British capitalism, as you've explained, from this like very far-sighted, strong capitalist nation conquering other nations, the colonies, uh, to this yeah more and more like insular-looking uh, uh, yeah, and and I think you've explained it well. Like the crisis, every every wave of crisis. I, I pay attention a bit to the like financial news and like the figures and numbers. Britain always seems to be worse than most uh, in terms of like the growth figures, even inflation rate. I don't even know what the inflation rate is in Britain, but it's quite high in the U.S. It's I think it's over seven percent in Canada. Um, but yeah, we have yeah this really deep crisis of British capitalism, and this, as you've you've mentioned a few things already, has had its reverberations in the political this like in terms of social turmoil political polarization because we're not just talking an abstract it's not an abstract point about capitalism or the economy this is people's lives so jobs wages benefits um things getting more expensive in general especially with this inflation crisis i guess we could call it now um so yeah this is really the context in which we're seeing all of these political well, it's political crisis, ultimately. Um, and I don't know, maybe we can get a bit into that, because this is really the... So we have the economic aspect, but then we can maybe move a bit more into the political uh, sphere of things, because there's... Boris Johnson resigning is just the latest thing in a long line of <laughs> uh, uh, scandals, crises, um, political upheavals uh, in the British establishment, of the whole union, ultimately. Um, so I don't know if you want to maybe say a few more words about th uh, things like this. Like you, you mentioned the Scottish independence referendum. This was a big earthquake. We have the this question of Northern Ireland. We have the crisis of the monarchy. You've had Brexit, which is at the heart of all of this, especially Boris Johnson uh, rising to power and now falling. Uh, um, we also have... On the left, you've had the Corbyn movement. We have the labor movement we can get into. But um, 
I don't know if you just have a, maybe just a few words to say about the how this has. Uh, you can go a bit more into depth for the listeners on, I guess, the political uh, the political polarization because of the crisis of British capitalism. Sure, I think yeah. As I said, it's it's really been a series of political earthquakes in in the UK. Uh, you know, as, and it really, I think the first one was the Scottish independence referendum, which really represented again a kind of kick in the teeth against the establishment. You know, Scotland has has traditionally had a, a more working class base. It's been more on the left. It's been more impacted by deindustrialization, by austerity. And that's led to a, a particularly uh, kind of acute polarization in Scotland. But in the absence at the time of any real left-wing alternative, it found an expression through the national question. Um, and, uh, and, and you had uh, these rumblings of, of people demanding uh, independence in Scotland. The SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, began uh, a, a few years before that it started to win uh, majorities in the Scottish Parliament. We have, we have devolved parliaments in, in Scotland, Wales, and, uh, and in Scotland, the, the Scottish Nationalist Party began to move to the left a bit. It became a kind of social democratic party, if you like, and it started to run on a more kind of left-wing, uh, left-of-centre programme, if you like. Although the, the leadership is still very much kind of bourgeois nationalists, you know, they, they talk about uh, you know having a Scottish capitalism and promoting Scottish business but they give it a kind of left cover if you like and uh, they were starting to win you know big majorities in uh, in the Scottish Parliament and that then paved the way for a, a referendum I think the Tories at the time led by David Cameron were very arrogant they didn't think that uh, that this had any chance and in fact the, the support for independence was very low at the beginning but the point was, it, it, it became a kind of accidental expression for all that discontent. And lots of young people in particular started flocking to the, to the yes movement, as it was known, the yes to independence. And you started having these huge rallies, tens of thousands of people gathering. And, uh, and it wasn't a kind of reactionary nationalism, if you like, of people demanding to wear tartan and fly the, 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 the St. David's flag or anything like that. Uh, you know, the, 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 and it was, it was actually uh, people wanting to, uh, you know, if you like, rebel against the Tories, uh, is wanting to, to, to kind of give the, uh, the establishment in Westminster a bit of a kick in the teeth, as I said. And it narrowly lost. Again, it was, it was the Unionist campaign only just won. And that was a big scare for the, the Tories because they are officially the Conservative and Unionist Party. They stand for conservative policy, policies, you know, economically and socially, but they also stand for the union, for the unity of the United Kingdom. And that is more and more being torn apart by all of these crises. As, as you alluded to also, Brexit then came along, which was, again, a, another kind of accidental expression of the anger in society, particularly in, in areas that were very left behind. I mean, again, similar to, to what you've had maybe in the Rust Belt in America, or some of the, uh, the kind of uh, deindustrialized areas in, in France that have, have maybe backed uh, Marine Le Pen. Um, you know, similar areas really where you've had a, a big working class uh, population that's, that's rapidly lost its jobs and, uh, you know, been deindustrialized. Brexit then was a way for these people to, to kind of make their voices heard, if you like. And, and again, uh, in the absence of any real 
proper left-wing campaign in that referendum. Again, the, the, the Tories were very arrogant. They, they thought, well, we'll win this one hands down. The, the, the majority of the capitalists, including David Cameron at the time, were in favor of, of remaining in the EU because that's where, where Britain exports all of its, uh, its goods or the majority of its exports go there. And, uh, and, and therefore, you know, they were very arrogant, very hubristic, one would say, and, and even though they, they narrowly escaped in the Scottish independence referendum, they still allowed the, the Brexit referendum to go ahead because they, they were losing a lot of support. There was a party called UKIP at the time, uh, and, he, and even more kind of Donald Trump type character called Nigel Farage, who was, who was whipping up a lot of uh, anti-EU sentiment, a lot of anti-Brussels sentiment, a lot of anti-migrant sentiment. And people like Boris Johnson, who was a kind of opportunist at the time, you know, still an opportunist now, of course, but he, uh, he was jumping on the bandwagon for his own careerist interests, uh, supporting this promising you know all sorts of uh, milk and honey if uh, if we left the eu but again this this hubris and this time it actually really backfired because narrowly again by 52% brexit actually won the day and uh, and there wasn't a left wing alternative being posed that was the point there wasn't a you know we we as marxists are against the eu we 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 believe it is a, a capitalist club uh, but the point was no one was making that argument all, all the brexit campaigning was being done against uh, migrants, against, uh, you know, against the EU uh, for, for nationalist reasons uh, rather than for, for socialist reasons. And on the other side, the Remain campaign was, again, dominated by people like Tony Blair and these liberals who were singing the praises of the single market, which has done nothing to protect ordinary people in Britain. Uh, and so you had no real positive alternative being posed and Brexit therefore narrowly won. And that in turn then accelerated the, the degeneration of the Tory party even further because suddenly you now had uh, David Cameron resigning, you had uh, Theresa May briefly coming in, uh, but the Tory party at that point was well and truly taken over by these rabid Brexiteers, by these people who uh, I think David Cameron even described them as the swivel-eyed loons who had taken over the ranks of the party, you know, these, these real uh, crazy folk uh, who were uh, you know, demanding all sorts of, uh, in, you know, uh, policies that were, were suicidal from the point of view of British capitalism, you know, a hard Brexit that would cut off Britain from uh, its main export market, getting rid of migrants uh, altogether, even though Britain had become very heavily reliant on migrant labour for many of its industries, which is one of the reasons why there's big labour shortages now. It's exacerbated even further inflation and so forth, because supply chains have been disrupted. So. It was a real uh, suicidal move from the part of British capitalism, but this is the point that the Tory party uh, was no longer really representing the interests of British capitalism. It was just uh, representing these, uh, this, 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 these swivel-eyed loons, as David Cameron called them. And, uh, and Boris Johnson then uh, eventually uh, took over in the Tory party uh, to get Brexit done, as he said. Theresa May had, had not actually been a Brexiteer. She'd been a Remain supporter. She, she was seen as being soft on Brexit and wasn't doing a good enough job. So, Tory, so Boris Johnson uh, was whipping up a campaign to get Brexit done. And eventually, Theresa May couldn't pass the kind of soft Brexit that she wanted. And uh, instead, Boris Johnson came in promising the hardest of hard Brexits and, uh, and, and in turn, causing all sorts of chaos in Westminster, even threatened to shut down Parliament at one point in order to, to, because he thought MPs weren't willing to pass 
the Brexit that the people wanted. And so he's really demagogically whipping things up. Uh, but in the process, it was clear that the capitalists had lost control of the Tory party. And then alongside that, they'd lost control of the Labour Party because you'd had the rise of Corbyn on the left, which was really the mirror image of the, the rise of the of Boris Johnson and the Brexiteers on the right. And that's that's the situation you had for, for a number of years in Britain, this, this extreme polarisation and the ruling class really losing control of the two main parties uh, that it existed in British politics up until uh, that point. Yeah, well, you've 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 explained to all this, uh, I guess, you know, the basically the crisis of the union uh, and the Brexit and the rise of Boris Johnson. You had UKIP, Nigel Farage. I think most of this, uh, well, not I guess I guess mostly the Brexit and the Boris Johnson stuff. This is a more if we talk about polarization in terms of the political effects, this is polarization on the right. Um, Scottish independence, uh, as I think as you described, you know, we talk about how nature abhors a vacuum. Like that working class anger is going to express itself some way and in a contradictory way it did express itself through the scottish uh independence movement uh which was generally sort of more of a left-wing phenomenon um as you described it was kind of like a against the tories against the blairites against the establishment um uh not really the like a reactionary nationalism but then you also had this uh brexit that sort of reflected some working class discontent although in a more reactionary way. Um, so yeah, you can have these things, and I think that's a big lesson for us, like this crisis of capitalism, For when you have the lack of a genuine working class leadership, a revolutionary leadership that's pointing to the, the capitalist system and the bourgeoisie as the problem, right? And putting forward a socialist, so you can have all sorts of transformations. You can have all sorts of expressions of this. Um, now, you mentioned Corbyn. I think we should probably get into that because... So far, it seems like a pretty, like it's been mostly on the right, but that's not true at all. I think in these crises, the working class instinct is to the left, actually. It's mostly to the left. And that's one thing that we argue that working class people tend to uh, tend to the left in times of crisis. And that's why we need, but, but the, the problem is, is a crisis of leadership. But yeah, many people in Canada did follow the Corbyn movement. I think many people were quite inspired by the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I guess you have the rise and fall of Jeremy Corbyn that we can talk about that too, but uh, yeah, maybe on the on the left end of things, did you want to maybe comment about like the the Corbyn movement and uh, why how that how why why and how that happened and uh, and yeah, and I guess probably after that we can get into a bit on things on the the industrial front, like there has been radicalization in the labor movement as well, but. For now, I don't know. Do you want to maybe comment on, yeah, the rise of the of Jeremy Corbyn and that phenomenon on the left? Sure. I, I think it's it's very similar, really, to what you had playing out in other countries, like uh, with Syriza in Greece or with Podemos in Spain, where you had these uh, movements, particularly of the youth, but also on the industrial front, against austerity, uh, against cuts. Uh, in Britain, you'd had a big student movement, for example, uh, in 2010 against uh, rising tuition fees in universities. Uh, you'd had a big uh, strike of public sector workers in 2011 against uh, attacks on pensions. And so you'd had the beginnings of, of, of people getting involved again in, in these kind of mass movements. And all of these were looking really for an expression on the political front, uh, you know, they, and having been blocked 
you know, on the industrial plane, students were defeated in their movement. The, the public sector workers were defeated in, in, in 2011. So eventually something had to give, if you like, there had to be an, a political expression against all of this. And that found its, its expression almost by accident through Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn had been an MP for, for decades, really. He was, he was kind of, you know, one of a, a small rump of left-wing uh, kind of self-declared socialist MPs within the Labour Party. Uh, you know, the Labour Party had been completely dominated by uh, the right wing, by Blair and, and all of his cronies for, for, for many years. And uh, the left was, as I said, reduced to this tiny uh, handful who were all in the back benches. But then uh, you had the, the resignation of, of Ed Miliband in 2015. He was this kind of interim leader who, who's not really remembered much in history, to be honest. Uh, he didn't really achieve much at all. He's a very forget, you know, easily forgotten figure. And the left kind of thought, well, we need to put up a fight somehow, you know, just put forward a tokenistic candidate. You know, we'll, they even said you had the left-wing journalists like uh, this figure, Owen Jones, saying, oh, well, you know, we, we shouldn't even stand a candidate because they'll get defeated and it'll just be demoralizing for people. So we should just stand aside and, 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 and just, you know, try and promote our policies without, a, without an actual uh, candidate. <laughs> In the end, Jeremy Corbyn said, well, I guess it's my turn to stand. You know, I, I, I might as well throw my hat into the ring. And he was this very unassuming character. He used to walk around in a tweed jacket, has an allotment, makes his own jam. You know, he's a, he's a kind of granddad figure who, who not many people knew much about, to be honest. But suddenly, all of this discontent in society found its expression through Jeremy Corbyn. His campaign suddenly took off because... He was on these television debates, kind of, uh, you know, basically speaking very differently from all these uh, besuited kind of big business type uh, characters. And suddenly young people, trade unionists, working class people, they were they were rallying behind him and he became a kind of overnight celebrity. And the, the, the ruling class were, were terrified because he went from being, you know, the complete outsider to very quickly leading you know, in the polls by, by many, many percentage points. And I think in the end, he, he won by you know, a landslide, actually. There were four candidates in the race and he, he beat them hands down with over 50% of the vote. That began, that began then beginnings of a civil war inside the Labour Party because Jeremy Corbyn's leadership victory brought in hundreds of thousands of new members, young people, workers, who had left the party because of the Iraq war, because of all the privatizations carried out in the Blair years, all of these right-wing policies had driven out the left. Suddenly, all these people flooded back, including a new generation of activists, and, and the party was transformed. You had, you know, suddenly uh, every little local Labour Party up and down the country was being taken over by the left. You know, people who'd not been involved in politics before were suddenly becoming branch secretaries of the local Labour parties, and, uh, and the whole party was moving very rapidly to the left. And, and it, was, it was one of these processes where the more people joined, the more it pushed the party to the left, the more it pushed Corbyn to the left, the more program, his program became bolder and uh, more radical. And that in turn inspired other people to join. And by 2017, Labour actually was in a position where, well, actually at that point, it was, it was ironic. Labour was actually lagging behind in the polls because there'd been you know, this media onslaught against Jeremy Corbyn, the army generals, the, 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 the whole of the, the journalist class, 
all of these uh, people and, and the right wing, particularly within the Labour Party, all of these people were this unholy alliance ganging up against uh, Jeremy Corbyn and, uh, and the left in the Labour Party saying that he was a, a catastrophe for the country if he was to be elected. And at that point, ironically, the, the Tories called an election thinking, well, this is our chance to finish off the Labour Party. But that election in 2017 actually then unleashed a mass movement. It was a, a bizarre phenomenon where people were suddenly singing Jeremy Corbyn's name at Glastonbury, this huge music festival, you know, huge uh, rallies were taking place up and down the country. And Labour suddenly shot up in the polls with a, with a programme promising nationalisation, an end to austerity, taxing the rich. You know, it was a, a reformist programme, but a, a very radical reformist programme in the history of the Labour Party. And it, it suddenly created this huge social phenomena where it looked like Labour could even have won. And if the election campaign had carried on for a few extra days, it, 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 you know, Labour actually might have caught up in the polls. They were, they were only a few thousand votes away, really, from winning it. Uh, in, in very uh, key seats, so key constituencies. So that was a real turning point. And at that point, the, the ruling class got really worried. The Tories had, had, had come out of that election with, that, with what we call a hung parliament. They, they, they weren't able to, uh, to form a, a majority government. And that led to then one crisis after another within the Tory parties. And, and within the Labour Party, the, the civil war just intensified and intensified. And there was this huge campaign then against the left, particularly over the question of anti-Semitism. They used this uh, really kind of spurious witch hunt accusation of, of, of claiming that there was anti-Semitism on the left, that Jeremy Corbyn hated Jewish people and that he was creating an environment uh, that was, uh, you know, uh, dangerous for, for Jewish Labour Party members. And it was all cooked up without any evidence whatsoever, but the media bombarded into it. The, the, the right wing and the Labour Party were sabotaging. All of this has come out subsequently. There's leaked documents showing the sabotage that was going on within the Labour Party by the right wing. But the thing is, the left didn't kick back against it. They just, uh, they just kept on apologising for a crime they hadn't committed. And in the end, it just sowed more and more demoralisation. The right wing, uh, they, they, they smelt blood, basically. They, they went on the offensive and they just uh, latched onto these accusations, whipped it up more and more. And the left, the left leaders weren't fighting back. So the membership became demoralized, uh, it became split. And eventually it really uh, led to complete disarray within the Labour Party. And particularly then on the question of Brexit, Labour abandoned uh, a kind of more class position where Jeremy Corbyn initially had wanted to, uh, to try and support neither side in Brexit. He said, look, let's focus on the class issues. Let's try and get Labour into power to, to, to protect the NHS, to defend public services no matter what you voted in the Brexit referendum, bring in a Labour Party government to try and uh, you know, fight austerity and, and fight for, for radical policies. But the right wing put on more and more pressure. They, they demanded that Labour support a second re referendum on the EU, that they, they support a Remain vote. And this just created more and more disillusionment amongst working class voters who, uh, who had voted for Brexit. And in the end, it was just complete chaos. The Labour Party was split, it was torn to pieces. You had sabotage, all of this demoralization, and eventually it led to, to Labour uh, really losing uh, quite badly in, in the 2019 election. Not as badly as the bourgeois and the ruling class made it out, but they ne did nevertheless uh, lose, lose the election. And Boris Johnson, then, had, uh, who had been elected by that point as Tory party leader, came to power, promising to get Brexit done, really turned the 2019 election into a, 
a kind of vote on on Brexit and uh, and was able then to kind of demagogically whip up uh, support and deliver this big 80 strong uh, Tory party majority. But as we said at the time, actually, uh, we said right in the days after that election that this government, far from being a strong government, would be a government uh, with dynamite built into its foundations. We said Boris Johnson would be a colossus with feet of clay. These, these are expressions that, 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 that Leon Trotsky uses in his writings. And we've been proven 100% correct on that because now, as we see two or three years later, this is a government of crisis. It is uh, being torn to pieces. And it shows really the, 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 the necessity of Marxism, you know, the foresight over astonishment. We were the only ones at the time who weren't demoralized by the defeat of the Corbyn movement, but who drew out the real lessons of it, the limits of the reformists and, uh, and the, the, the inability to really carry through with their program. And that was what then paved the way for the right wing to come back into the driving seat. They, they put forward Keir Starmer, who is, uh, if you like, this kind of he, he was he was presented as, as the candidate of the, you know, the, who would unite the party. He wasn't the left or the right. But it was obvious to, to those who, who had eyes to see that, that actually he was very much on the right wing. But he was just trying to paint himself, if you like, as like Corbyn without, uh, Cor you know, Corbynism without Corbyn. He was promising left wing policies, but with a with a with a with a more sensible, more uh, more professional approach, if you like. He was a lawyer, a sir. He'd been uh, head of the, the Crown Prosecution Service. So he then he promised all this kind of serious revamp of the Labour Party, but keeping all the left wing policies. But all of that was jettisoned the minute he got elected. He, he threw out all the left wing policies. He threw out all the left wing MPs and he started purging the party of its left wing membership, including socialist appeal, uh, the Marxist tendency within the Labour movement. And that's basically uh, where we've ended up now with this on the one side. This Labour Party that's been gutted of its left wing uh, membership has been kind of brought back uh, over to the side of Blairism. And then on the other side, uh, the, the Tory party, this government of crisis, uh, where they're, they're battling it out to, uh, to, to see who can be the most right wing uh, replacement for Boris Johnson. Yeah, so I, want, I wanted to ask a question because I think the Corbyn, it is unfortunate what has happened to the Corbyn movement. I think a lot of people were, like I said, were excited and enthusiastic about this. There was, like you said, a hundred, hundreds of thousands of people that joined the Labour Party. The elections, there were, there were quite, you know, there were, there were big surges in support for Labour, uh, Labour's policies uh, that, that, that the Corbyn Labour Party was putting forward. But then, um, as you described, there was this concerted media establishment campaign and, and it combined with a civil war of the Blairites against the left wing of the party, against the Corbyn leadership that destroyed the movement ultimately. And so I know like talking a lot of left wing people I, I find are quite depressed about that. Right. And there's this kind of thing that like we as Marxists, I mean, and I think in general, we, we need to learn why this happened right you need to learn the lessons from this but i find sometimes people like oh they almost it's almost described as like it was inevitable right oh the media was so strong we couldn't we didn't want to split the party so we couldn't break from the right wing blairites basically um because that would innate that would mean that the tories would win by the way they won anyway um <laughs> so i i just want to ask like the question was that inevitable like did 
is all because because what you're describing here is yes a Tory party with all bunch of reactionaries trying to win the leadership, and a Labour party that's dominated by Keir Starmer who is essentially a Blairite. On the electoral front, that doesn't look so promising. So on the surface level, for many people, could be depressed about that. We are not depressed about that. <laughs> I think you've described like a bit already the perspectives. Like we can get into that a bit more. But like, I guess going into the core movement, was that inevitable that this was going to happen? Like what could have been done differently? I guess this is getting into the lessons about, um, yeah, we need to draw lessons from this because that is... That is a defeat for the movement. It is a defeat for the left. And we, we shouldn't think of these things as inevitable, I think. But I don't know if you want to say a few words about, was it inevitable that the Corbyn movement was going to be destroyed? Well, yeah, it's it's kind of inevitable yes and no, I think is the answer to that. In the sense that obviously uh, it's not inevitable uh, that the right wing would, would have to get back in the saddle. Um, you know, if the left, had uh, had fought with the same ruthlessness and determination that the right did, then they could have transformed the Labour Party into a genuine mass socialist movement and uh, and could have then come to power. As I said, they were narrowly defeated in the 2017 election, and uh, you could have you could have seen a Corbyn government formed. Uh, but the thing is, it was inevitable in the sense that without a real Marxist leadership at the head of that movement, then of course you were going to get these uh, betrayals, if you like. You were going to get these uh, capitulations, uh, and and that's the point: is that you know we we said from the beginning we support the Corbyn movement, we support Jeremy Corbyn as leader because it it gave an expression to all the anger in society, because it politicized a whole new generation, it, it created a mass movement, and that was a very positive thing. But we also said in our articles from uh, the beginning, we said, unless Corbyn and the left go on the offensive against the right wing from day one, unless they, they try and give power to the membership to transform the Labour Party into a genuine mass socialist party, unless they do that, then eventually uh, you will end up with, uh, with retreats and defeats. And, and that's exactly what happened. And it was obvious from day one, because even before day one, before Corbyn was even elected, you had, as I said, army generals coming on TV, threatening a coup d'etat if there'd ever been a Corbyn government. You, you had the whole paper, uh, you know, journalistic kind of uh, establishment and, uh, the, you know, every pillar of the establishment really was uh, ganging up against uh, Corbyn and the left. And it was clear they were never going to allow him to be uh, prime minister. They were never going to accept him, no matter how many compromises were made, no matter how much he tried to move uh, to the uh, to the right, no matter how many olive branches he held out to his opponents, you know every time uh, they attacked him, he showed weakness, and uh, and and that weakness invited aggression, and that that was the point is that, you know, the right wing were ruthless. They they wanted Corbyn gone, not so much because they were afraid of Corbyn. I mean, we saw with Syriza in Greece that that left leaders can be uh, can be. If you like pushed around by the ruling class, you know they could the left the, the ruling class can bend left leaders to their will if, if necessary. But they were more. I think the thing they were most afraid was the movement behind Corbyn. That was what they did not have full control over. And and we were saying, look, that movement needs to be given the power, if you like, to 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 be in the driving seat. We were saying 
there needed to be uh, what we call mandatory reselection, which in other words means Labour Party members should have been given the power to choose their own MPs, to, to, to choose who would represent Labour at a local level. That basic democratic rule was never brought in, even though there were many attempts by members to get it introduced. It even went to one of the Labour Party conferences and was on the, on the agenda, but the unions, and this also shows the need to, the, the, the link between the la Labour and the unions, the unions have a big vote within the Labour Party and the, even the left-wing union leaders at the time were blocking these democratic moves because they were afraid also of losing control. The left wing, the, the, the left leaders at the time in the unions, they wanted to remain you know, in control of the Labour Party. They wanted to be the kingmakers and they didn't like the idea that the membership would be uh, kind of let loose, if you like, because they didn't know how far it would go. You know, There was momentum as well created, which was this kind of uh, new uh, left-wing faction within the Labour Party to try and defend Corbyn and, and pass Corbyn's policies within the, the party. But he, again, the leaders of that were, were very conservative and tried to keep members on a tight leash. And so you had all of these left leaders, ultimately, Corbyn himself, John McDonnell, who is his shadow chancellor, Len McCluskey, who was head of Unite the Union at the time, uh, John Landsman, who was head of the, the Momentum faction, all of these people were calling for more and more conservative policies, while the membership were demanding more and more radical policies. And, uh, and it was really that, that crisis of leadership, ultimately, that was responsible for the defeat of the Corbyn movement. And it really brings to mind what, what Leon Trotsky said, that you know, at the end of the day, betrayal is inherent within reformism, because these characters, they ultimately don't really believe in the socialist transformation of society. They don't believe that the working class has the power to change society. They talk about socialism, they pay lip service to it, they talk about the working class, but they don't actually believe that these uh, policies, uh, that this transformation is possible. And so when push came to shove, rather than, rather than seeing the civil war within the Labour Party for what it was, which was a class war between uh, the left and the right, between the, the working class trying to change the Labour Party to represent workers, and the big business uh, elements trying to keep control of the Labour Party in their hands, rather than seeing that class question, you had the classic mistake of reformism, which is to think that those two antagonistic class interests can all be reconciled around the same table, that everyone can get along. And so they constantly made compromises. They kept on trying to appease the right wing and the right wing, whenever they were given an inch, demanded a mile and just kept on grinding down the, the left and even once uh, they were in power, the right wing kept on doing the same thing. Even now, the left doesn't, uh, hasn't learned these lessons in terms of the left leaders. They still talk about unity within the party. They still talk about trying to persuade the right wing to take on board their policies. In other words, they've learned really nothing of the lessons, whereas I think a lot of ordinary people, a lot of activists have learned the lessons. I mean, a lot of people just the day after the general election defeat in 2019, we had a flood of people writing into our website, Socialist Appeal website, because every step along the way, we had said we support Corbyn, but it needs to go further. It needs to be bolder. It needs to be more determined. It needs to ultimately uh, take forward a class position, a Marxist position. And, and I think that, that kind of uh, patient explanation ultimately uh, led a lot of the, the best, uh, most uh, radicalized, most class conscious layers to draw the, these kind of revolutionary conclusions and to realize that what is necessary 
as we've been saying all along, is a, a strong Marxist tendency, to strong forces of Marxism within the labor movement. And, uh, and these same lessons, I think, are, are playing out now within the rest of the labor movement, within the unions, because defeated on the political front, we are seeing a turn towards the industrial front. We are seeing a transformation in the unions taking place. We are seeing more and more strikes taking place. And the same kind of process is starting to take place in terms of a transformation at the tops of the unions. And uh, anyway, we can we can say a bit more on that if you like. But uh, yeah, the, the, the same lessons of the Corbyn movement are, are still being digested and absorbed, if you like, by the most radical layers. And it's vital, really, that activists do learn those lessons so that we don't repeat the same mis mistakes. You know, he who does not learn from history is doomed to repeat it, as we often say. Yeah, we, we quite often say that Marxism is the memory of the working class. And this is actually a big point here that I, I think you said it. I mean, clearly the betrayal is inherent in reformism. If you do not believe in the social, that you can't have a different system than the capitalist system, ultimately, and you don't believe in a socialist transformation of society, uh, you will try to compromise and you will capitulate. That means eventually capitulation some way down the road. So sometimes you can have these left leaders like Corbyn or, you know, Bernie Sanders comes to mind in the, in the United States that talk quite left, enthuse people, but then let them down at the end of the day. And, and, and we see what's happened in Britain. This has led to, to really the destruction of the, the left of the Labour Party of the, of the, Cor the Corbyn movement. Uh, weakness, when you show weakness against the ruling class, ultimately, these, are, these people are fighting for capitalism. You show weakness, weakness invites aggression. So, yeah, not even, even I, I do remember watching Corbyn and d d respond to attacks in a very kind of a defensive way which I think was incorrect. I think you got to go on the offense against these people. He was like apologizing for things that he wasn't guilty of. Like in terms mm. of the anti-Semitism, like all the, all the information and statistics show that, that there was lower anti-Semitism anti in the Labour Party than in society at large. Why was there this big witch hunt about that when there's more anti-Semitism in the Conservative Party? Mm. It was a whipped up kind of witch hunt thing and he should not have been apologizing for that. Actually, mm. didn't the reports from this show that under Corbyn, the Labour Party was dealing with cases of anti-Semitism and racism in general better than ever before? So mm. it was complete fabrication. But I think that's a lesson from this, that the left cannot be trying to compromise. And, and that's why we need Marxism ultimately. Marxism is about a consistent class policy and not compromising with this and actually fighting back against all attacks uh, from the ruling class. Um, yeah, and I guess... You know, we've been talking for a little while here, so maybe, you know, you mentioned some of this stuff in the labor movement. So it seems like a lot of people turn to, I guess, the political sort of electoral front, the Corbyn movement. Uh, that was defeated or destroyed for the reasons explained. Um, that was kind of the left wing representation of the political polarization that you had on the which you had on the right with Brexit and Boris Johnson. Um, you know, so like I said, a lot of people could be depressed about this situation. We are not because the working class is not defeated in Britain. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm. I don't think the working class, just because the Corbyn movement's been defeated doesn't mean the working class is defeated. And you have seen and we are seeing a process of radicalization in the labor movement. So people seem to be turning, you already talked about it a little bit, turning to the, the industrial front, the trade union front. Um, 
I don't know, do you want to make, maybe make a, a few comments about that? And I guess that leads into perspectives. Like what are we, are, what is the perspective going forward? Are we, are we headed, are the ruling, have the ruling class got the situation under control, I guess? Um, but yeah, maybe you could start with a few words about the situation in the labor movement in Britain with the, sure. yeah, the basically the, we're talking about the class struggle, right? This is the class struggle. Exactly, exactly. I think uh, what you had under the Corbyn era was almost like a pause on the industrial front where everything was being channeled around Corbyn. You know, everyone's hopes and aspirations were looking towards the idea of a, of a, of a left-wing Labour government to come in and solve all their problems, uh, which obviously, even if a Corbyn government had come in uh, without really fundamentally challenging capitalism, you would still have had uh, the same kind of uh, problems there. You know, the, 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 the policies Corbyn was putting forward were very good. Uh, they were a big step in the right direction, but he was still ultimately uh, trying to patch up capitalism. And, and, and as I said earlier, a British capitalism that's in a particularly deep crisis, which uh, cannot really afford reforms. Um, and so you're seeing that now, really. Uh, you know, you've had the pandemic, which again kind of put the uh, industrial struggle on pause for a bit. Um, but now that we've had uh, lockdowns ended and, uh, and we've had, you know, uh, you know, all of this uh, money being spent to bail out capitalism in Britain and all of this inflation now suddenly coming about because of various factors from uh, the kind of all of the, uh, the, 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 the fictitious capital they've pumped into the system all of the uh, supply shocks they've had from the, the, the supply chains to the, the war in Ukraine, all of this is exacerbated. And in Britain, it's hit particularly hard. I think inflation now is, is running at over 9%. They're saying it will go up to 11% at least by the end of the year. And it'll stay there forever. And so you've had workers, you know, basically biting their lips for the last two years, uh, kind of tightening their belts, um, you know, just uh, trying to keep their heads down through the pandemic, just survive that coronavirus crisis. But now suddenly, uh, you know, the, the, the dam has burst again on this front where workers are saying, well, look, uh, we, we haven't had a pay rise in years. I think wage growth in Britain has been slower in the last decade than at any time since the Napoleonic Wars. That's, that's 200 years ago. So you know, workers have never had it so bad when it comes to, to wages. Conditions are being ground down in terms of what they call zero-hour contracts, precarious work. The gig economy is a big uh, issue here in Britain as well. Uh, there's this thing called fire and rehire now. Uh, there's this big epidemic, if you like, of bosses, uh, just mass sackings of workers so that they can try and employ new workers on worse terms and conditions. This, this, this is going on in all sorts of industries at the moment. So you're seeing the bosses are really going on the offensive, trying to make workers pay for this uh, crisis. Uh, and at the same time, inequality is getting bigger. The, the richest people in Britain are, are getting even richer. And there's, there's huge levels of, of poverty uh, at the same time, you know, child uh, poverty, hunger, rising use of food banks. And, and particularly this question of, of energy bills, you know, the, the, the inflation on, on energy and, and fuel and, and petrol uh, is going up through the roof. People are stealing petrol from petrol stations uh, because they can't afford to fill up their cars anymore. You know, people are uh, stealing, uh, you know, from, from supermarkets, uh, you, know, you know, not scanning items 
uh, when they get to the till and just putting it in their bags and then getting caught because they just can't afford to, to feed their families. You know, it's, it's not even a question of heating or eating anymore. It's, it's a question of neither in some cases. You know, people are really, uh, they're, they're talking about millions of people going into to fuel poverty this, uh, this, this, this autumn. And, and they're predicting social explosions. I mean, ten, just over 10 years ago, we had these riots that started in London and spread throughout the UK uh, against kind of police repression. Well, since then, conditions have gotten worse. Police repression has gotten worse. There's, there's zero trust in the police anymore because they've been rocked by scandals. There's been all sorts of, uh, you know, scandals relating to, to racism, misogyny. Uh, there was a police officer a serving police officer who was, uh, was found guilty of having abducted and, and raped and murdered a, a, a young woman who was, was walking alone at night. And, and all of this is going on at a time when, you know, there's this intense anger bubbling away beneath the surface. And they're predicting there could be more social explosions, but the police themselves are split. The, the whole establishment is, is split. The monarchy is in crisis with, with all their own scandals going on particularly around uh, Prince Andrew, who's uh, this, uh, you know, accused of, uh, of, of, of being involved in uh, this kind of paedophilic uh, elite ring uh, that, that was organized by uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and, and Jeffrey Epstein. So you just see at every level, the whole establishment is, is being, uh, you know, coming under question, the police, the monarchy, the media, corruption at every level. And so really there, there could be, you know, a social explosion at any time. At the moment, it's mainly playing out on the industrial front, and you're starting to see workers uh, striking in one industri industry after another. And in fact, now in whole sectors, that's the that's the really uh, important development that we've had recently. Uh, in the last few weeks, you've had a national rail strike of around 40,000 rail workers, and there's going to be another round of strikes with even more railway workers coming out from from various different unions the, the postal workers the, the people who deliver the post they're potentially going to be going on strike before the end of uh, this month they're going to be joined by people in telecommunications industry uh the the civil servants are balloting to go on strike the teachers in schools are balloting to go on strike over the last year we've seen waves of action by uh, university lecturers and other university workers cleaners things like that so really across the board it's it's just one industry after another and and the whole public sector could be out on strike by the end of the year people in local government people in the nhs in particular and it's mainly over the question of pay so all of this is starting to come together really where you could see uh coordinated action i think that's the the, the logic that things are moving in is these unions coming together and different and these and and in the process the union leaders a new generation of union leaders if you like are coming to the surface some of the the old union leaders are, are moving to the side, new ones are coming to the fore, and they speak more militantly. They speak about class struggle. They speak about workers' power. They're still ultimately reformists in that, you know, they talk about taxing the rich rather than what we would say, expropriate the rich, you know, plan the economy. They still talk about ultimately trying to patch up capitalism, but they, they're, they're giving confidence to workers to take action, to come together. And it's really breathing confidence throughout the whole movement you know workers in each sector are looking at these strikes and saying well if, if the rail workers can do it why can't we do it and it's starting to transform the unions themselves the, 
they're moving to the left in, in the big unions like Unite, which organizes in the private sector in manufacturing. And in Unison is particularly a, a, a very uh, pertinent example. This is a civil, uh, a public sector union. It organizes NHS workers and, uh, and local government workers. It's the biggest union in the country. And it's always been under the control of the right wing. But actually now in the last year, they've had a left wing leadership elected that is now clashing with the right wing bureaucracy that kind of controls the day to day running of the union. And so, again, you're seeing almost like a repeat of the Corbyn movement playing out where there's a left wing leadership being elected, but a right wing kind of machine that, that is clinging on to power. And unfortunately, we have to say, honestly, that left wing is not learning or has not learned the, the lessons of the Corbyn movement and is making many of the same mistakes in that they are trying to compromise with the right wing bureaucracy. They are trying to apologize for accusations of, of again, of kind of identity politics uh, attacks, you know, racism, misogyny, completely spurious accusations being leveled against the left wing, but the left are buckling to it. And, and, it, and it just shows the, the, the pernicious danger dangerous way in which identity politics will be used against the left by the right wing, who are very cynical. They, they've, they've learned the lessons of the Corbyn movement, if you like, which is to use identity politics, to attack the left wing with it, to, to go on the offensive, to be ruthless. And unfortunately, these left leaders haven't learned the same thing. And, and we, Socialist Appeal, are very much involved in this struggle, actually. We have comrades who are on the, uh, the leading body of Unison, we are, we are writing articles and analysis. Uh, we were at Unison Conference the other week, uh, engaged in this battle. And we are, again, as we were in the time of the Corbyn movement, putting forward the most bold demands, talking about the lessons of the Corbyn movement, talking about the need for a real determined militant leadership that is willing to transform that union and transform the whole labor movement into uh, a, you know, a, a fighting weapon for the working class that can actually carry out the socialist transformation of society rather than buckling and compromising to the ruling class and their agents inside the labor movement. All right. Well, that's a, that's a great explanation of really the crisis and how it affects working class people and then how working class people are starting to or trying to fight back on the industrial front. And I think um, yeah, there's a lot of lessons about how to do that. And then you see this struggle within the unions between the right and the left. But ultimately, uh, you know, Marx talked about the mole of revolution. That mole ultimately cannot be stopped at one point or another. It breaks through. People learn, uh, not immediately necessarily. And I do think there's a lot of confusion in the movement uh, uh, in Canada, in Britain. Obviously, you've mentioned a few things. And we, as Marx, we say, we people must learn the lessons, right? This is a class struggle. There's a revolutionary movement developing, I think, in every country uh, that you have a potential for this. The crisis, if we talk about perspectives, I think what you're describing, we're not talking about a perspective of stable British capitalism. <laughs> okay, Corbyn's gone. The Corbyn movement's been destroyed. You have, it seems like the ruling class has got, with Keir Starmer, has has reestablished control over the Labour Party. Uh, and we'll see what happens in the Tory party. But that doesn't mean that the situation is all peachy for British capitalism. Um, as you described, I mean, this this class anger cannot be contained forever uh, and is already starting to break through in many ways with new leaders, new left leaders, strikes, militant strikes, as the workers 
re uh, rediscover uh, their traditions of struggle from the past that mm. had been had been buried for decades. I think of compromise, you know, which we've seen we've seen in Britain, we've seen in Canada, we've seen in in many areas of the world. But that that can only last for so long, and 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 I think us as Marxists in the international Marxist tendency in socialist appeal in fight back and Lariposte socialist socialist in Canada is we are fighting to build a Marxist leadership, right? A Marxist organization, a Marxist voice in the labor movement, helping activists, helping working class people, uh, youth to learn these lessons, to learn how to fight back and win and not lose. And, and so I think like we're not in the slightest uh, depressed about the situation. I think the, for the first, well, I mean, I've been a Marxist since 2005, I think. I think you've been a Marxist for a similar amount of time. Like, the, the the situation has never been better to be a Marxist. The capitalist system is is in a horrible state, and more and more people are waking up and realizing that. And the there's going to be ups and downs. And I think we need to tell we need to people need to get used to that. There's going to be ups and downs. There will be defeats. There will be many defeats. There will be failures. And along that road people learn the lessons they rediscover the traditions and yes marxists as the memory of the working class it is our duty to help people learn those lessons and we mm. are growing we are building uh and we are uh yeah we're advancing you mentioned many things in britain i know our organization socialist appeal you you guys have been growing fantastically uh as people really see that our ideas have been borne out, right? What we said about the Corbyn movement, what we said about the labor movement, what we said about the capitalist system in general, I think more and more people are seeing that and realizing that, that we need a strong Marxist leadership, Marxist organization. But really, I think it's, sometimes we say this, it's a, it's a bit of a race against time because almost a mass mm. movement or a revolution could break out, I think in Britain, if you <laughs> what we're describing here at any moment, ultimately, you could have, I mean, like uh, nature abhors a vacuum like this anger has to be expressed at one point or another through and and it has been in many ways but really it's a fight to channel that anger in a healthy direction mm. towards the socialist transformation of society so i don't know with that i think this is really what we're what we have this podcast for this is why i have you on today so that we can help people learn these lessons i hope that this has helped uh people understand what's happening in Britain, not just to learn. It's not like Britain is an island, although it's, it's not like it's totally divorced from the world and there's nothing to be learned. I think that what is occurring in Britain, the general process is going to occur, and we're already starting to see this occur in Canada in some ways, although I do believe that Britain and the UK is, 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 is ahead of us in a few by a few steps, but but we're, the, the, the whole discussion here is really about helping people. We need to prepare, ultimately, and we need to learn lessons from this. And we need to build a healthy Marxist leadership, Marxist organization in Canada, which is what we are doing and we are doing with the international Marxist tendency. So uh, I don't know. I have a couple more things to say. I don't know if you have any final words about uh, maybe about about the, the perspectives for Britain, about... Sure. Uh, about what Socialist Appeal is doing to prepare for that. Uh, and then sure. I have a couple of words to maybe finish off. Sure, yeah, I think what you said there is really important that, you know, Britain isn't um, 
some sort of isolated case, you know, it's not special. Uh, and it's certainly, uh, you know, not the end of the story with Boris Johnson going. I think really Boris Johnson's resignation, it, it's gonna open up a new chapter in the crisis. I think that's the, the key thing because whoever that comes in now to replace him is gonna be not uh, some sort of uh, strong and stable character, not some safe pair of hands for the ruling class, it's going to be someone who appeals to that, you know, rabid rank and file of the Tory party. They're going to be anti-EU, anti-migrants, uh, you know, they're going to be jingoistic. They're going to be promising uh, more and more libertarian kind of tax cuts. Uh, and it's going to be, uh, you know, really whoever's there is going, to, is going to be a disaster for British capitalism. The whole Tory party has become a disaster for British capitalism. Keir Starmer might end up accidentally almost coming to power in the sense that you might have a, a general election sooner rather than later with a new Tory party leader. And, uh, and the ruling class may well push Keir Starmer as the kind of more sensible choice, uh, maybe in a coalition with the Liberals. But the point is that whoever comes to power, it's going to be a government of crisis because Capitalism is in a deep crisis, and uh, and and as long as any government tries to operate within the limits of capitalism, they are going to have to carry out cuts. They're going to have to carry out austerity and attacks on the working class, and therefore this industrial struggle, this class struggle that we've seen, is only going to intensify. And I think the important thing for us as Marxists is yeah to have that perspective, to because that's what gives us the revolutionary optimism, if you like, and particularly to focus on the youth. I think the the youth is something we haven't really talked about uh, yet the, 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 in, in this uh, podcast, because what you have seen in Britain uh, alongside this uh, militancy on the industrial front is, a, is an enormous radicalization of the youth. You know, the ideas of socialism, Marxism, communism, you know, these have never been so popular amongst young people. And, uh, and we're seeing that in, with our, our own eyes, you know, in, in Socialist Appeal, we've founded the Marxist Student Federation with uh, dozens of, of, of Marxist clubs on the campuses and universities, supporting uh, workers on strike, but most importantly, discussing theory, discussing ideas, and trying to educate a whole new generation in these lessons that you talked about, the lessons of, of the class struggle that are embodied and crystallized within the theory that we, we discuss and we learn, the theory, the ideas of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Trotsky. That's really the primary goal that we've got and we're not, you know, we're not allowing ourselves to get distracted from that main task. You know, every, every crisis, if you like, every uh, battle that, that takes place, all of it for us is an opportunity to, to put forward Marxist ideas and to try and win over the most advanced layer of workers and youth and organize them around a Marxist program. That's really the primary task that we've got in front of us here in Britain. And it's the same task everywhere else. And, and all I would say to finish really is, you know, to anyone in a, in, a, in a country that thinks, you know, things are peaceful and quiet here and, you know, we've got time and uh, so forth, you know, it's it, class struggle isn't something that happens in my country. It's, you know, that's what people used to say about Britain. They used to call it sleepy old Britain. It used to be one of the most stable capitalist countries. Now, I think we can see from everything we discussed today that it's really one of the most unstable capitalist countries. And all of that has happened within the space really of a decade or, or so. And, and you know, the, the, the polarization, the radicalization you've seen alongside that has been uh, rapid, enormously rapid. 
And it's led also to a very rapid growth of the forces of Marxism. You know, we've seen lots of people, you know, a real, a real doubling in the size of the organization over the last couple of years, but we've still got a long way to go. So obviously, if there is anyone listening to this who is in Britain, please get in touch with, uh, with us at socialist.net, get in touch and, and join us in the fight for socialism in Britain. And obviously, wherever you are in the world listening to this, join the IMT and, uh, and help us build the forces of Marxism internationally and, uh, and prepare, as I said, for the big turbulent explosive events that are going to happen, not just in Britain, but in one country after another in the months and uh, years ahead. Cool. Well, thanks, Adam. That ends off well. Um, yeah. So I, just a final thing I want to plug. So we, we're, we're, we're members of the international Marxist tendency. Uh, yeah, we are an international uh, building the forces of Marxism all over the world. Um, we, if you are interested and you want to get involved, you want to learn more about Marxism, Marxist ideas. Ultimately, that's what this is all about. Ideas are at the heart of all of this. If you don't understand and you don't know what you don't you don't know, you can't act. So I find that uh, instead of running around like chickens with their head cut off, we need to study. We need to learn more. That will enable us to to uh, be effective in the class struggle. That's ultimately what Marxism is all about, to lead the workers to power, to transform society along socialist lines. And with that uh, in mind, we have uh, the international Marxist tendency has an international Marxist university coming up uh, from the 20 on the for four days. Uh, it's on the 23rd to the 26th of July. I highly encourage everyone. It's going to be online. Uh, we have there's thousands of people that have already registered from all over the world to participate for these four days. There'll be many many sessions on world perspectives, on Marxism and art, on Marxist economics, the labor theory of value, on uh, yeah historical materialism, on the Spanish conquest of the Americas, on uh, the revolutions of 1848 in Europe, on the Marxist theory of knowledge. Uh, actually, Adam, you're giving one of the presentations on Marxism, money, and inflation. There are, I could list them all, there are a bunch more. If you want to register, I highly encourage you to, to, to register for the Marxist University and to attend uh, the Marxist University. You can go to our website at marxist.ca uh, and register for that, and you will get all the information about that, and you can register. Uh, and we actually have, uh, as Fight Back, we have watch parties in different cities, so you could also come to a watch party and attend and discuss uh, with members of the IMT in Canada as we learn about all of these various amazing topics. So I highly encourage people if, you know, maybe you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you're not sure, but you want to learn more, I highly encourage you to, 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 to register for the, the International Marxist Tendency, uh, or register for the International Marxist Uni University, and yes, ultimately join us if, you're, if, you're, if, if you are uh, looking for something to, to fight back some to fight back against the barbarity of capitalism the capitalist system uh, and you want to fight for a socialist future then we are the organization to join um, so ultimately yeah go to marxist.ca marxist.com socialist.net uh, and and get involved in the fight for socialism you have been listening to this week in the Canadian Revolution where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system, 
in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca and we will be doing this podcast every week. So we hope that you tune in again.